following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Romans chapter 11, it's been a couple weeks, three weeks since we were in Romans, and so I'm looking forward to jumping back into our series today, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 11. And, uh, nope, that's not it. That's a microphone. So, that's to pick up your singing mic. (laughs) So, Romans chapter 11. The text says, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. One of the most uh, tricky uh, but, but very important aspects of biblical preaching and really of all good Bible study is what expositors oftentimes call bridging contexts. And so the idea is, is fairly simple. That, for example, um, Paul did not originally write Romans for LifePoint Baptist Church of Apple Valley, California on September 17th, 2023. No, Paul lived in a very different context from our own. And he wrote Romans for a church on the other side of the world that lived 2,000 years ago. So our context and their context are very different. Now that's obvious when you think about it. But, unfortunately, oftentimes, people don't think about that when they're interpreting Scripture, and, they re- and the result is a lot of really bad abuses of the Bible. So, uh, for example, um, Dr. Brock actually brought this up in Sunday school, I don't know, a year and a half or so ago, and, but it's a good one. So there's an old hymn called Bringing in the Sheaves, and uh, it's a song about sharing the gospel. And, of course, sharing the gospel is a really good thing. We want to see people one to Christ, and we want to bring them to the Lord. But the problem is, is that that imagery of bringing in the sheaves comes from Psalm 126. And Psalm 126 is about God bringing the Israelites from the Babylonian captivity back to Israel. It has nothing to do with evangelism. But someone didn't really consider the context of Psalm 126, and they really abused and misapplied the message of that psalm. So a good Bible student has to distinguish the original context of the passage 
from his own. But just because the contexts are different doesn't mean that there's not real value and real profit in that passage or that it's not relevant to our lives today. No, all Scripture is profitable. So so what we have to do is we have to build a bridge from their context to ours. You have to think about what are the principles, the timeless truths that are there that carry over to our lives today and what does that look for us look like for us in our world. That's not always easy, but it is always worth the effort. And I bring that up because that idea of building a bridge is tricky when you come to our passage today. You know, the Roman church was being torn apart by questions about the ongoing role of Israel in the church age. And so the people there were very concerned, very concerned over the present state of Israel, and that concern was creating harsh divisions among the people at the church. But that is not our world. Now, we might occasionally have a debate over dispensationalism and covenant theology, but I doubt you lay awake at night worrying about what's going to happen to the nation of Israel, particularly as it concerns the purposes of God. So does that mean... Romans 11 is irrelevant for our lives? Should we just skip over Romans 11 and jump to chapter 12? Because chapter 12 is a whole lot more practical. Well, no. All Scripture is profitable. God says that. And so so we have to carefully bridge contexts from the original context of this passage to ours. Understand what Paul is saying in his context and think about what principles carry over for us. And we're going to work hard to do that the next few weeks as we walk through Romans 11. And for today, uh, my, te- my outline of, of verses 1 through 11 is built on three truths about Israel. And so, if we could go ahead and advance to the next slide, the first truth that we're going to see from verses 1 through 4 is that God will preserve a remnant. So, so we're going to look at three principles that God is teaching about the nation of Israel And then with each, think about what does that mean for us today. And verse 1 begins with a very important question. And that question comes, and this question really dominates all of chapter 11. So so Paul says in chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? Now Paul takes 32 verses to answer this question. So it's really, it's clearly very important to Paul. But why? Why does he care? And why should we care about whether or not God has rejected Israel? Well, remember that that Romans 9 through 11 is all about the issue of Israel's rejection of Messiah. You know, Paul wrote Romans some 30 years or so after Jesus had died. And it was becoming very apparent that the Jews, for the most part, We're not going to accept Jesus as their Messiah. And that grieved the Jewish Christians. And some of the Gentiles were asking, well, if if the Jews won't even accept Jesus as their Messiah, then why should we believe in Him? And so Romans 9 responds that God never promised that He would save every single descendant of Abraham. No, God's sovereign will, not physical descent, determines who will be saved. But Romans 10 adds that each Israelite is also responsible for his or her own choice. 
The vast majority had rejected Jesus. And therefore, chapter 10 concludes by calling them a disobedient and obstinate people. Now, considering all that, considering God's sovereign will, considering Israel's rejection of Jesus, Paul knew that some people were going to ask this question in chapter 11. Well, if all that's true, has God rejected His people? Is God done with ethnic Israel? And Romans 11 is going to answer that question. Now, now you might be wondering, well, why should I care about what's going to happen to Israel? So, so I want to mention three reasons. In the next slide, there are three reasons you should care about the future of Israel. And the first reason is, is because you care about the faithfulness of God. Now, Christianity is built on God's promises. We live our lives based on the assumption that God is going to do what He said. And so if God can break His promises to Israel, well then what's to say that He can't break His promises to us? And so any threat to the faithfulness of God ought to perk our attention. And so we should care about this because we care about the faithfulness of God. And we're going to talk a lot today about that issue. And second, you should care because you care about the meaning of Scripture. Now, I mentioned earlier that, that among people who believe the gospel, there is a, a, a fairly significant divide among people who hold to what is dispensationalism, which is our church's position, and, and what is also called or what is called covenant theology. And, and a lot of those who hold to covenant theology, they, they, most of them probably would say that, that Israel has some kind of minor role in the future. It's frankly hard to read Romans 11 and come to any other conclusion than that God doesn't have something still in store for the nation of Israel. But, but most of them would say that, that, that what God has for the future... Uh, that, that, God, that, that, that God is not going to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament that He made for Israel nearly the way the prophets anticipated. So, so the, the Old Testament talks about the fact that someday God is going to give, a, 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 a Davidic king is going to come. And He is going to rule from the city of Jerusalem over the nations. And, and Israel is going to have this wonderful, glorious kingdom. But, the covenant, but those who hold the covenant theology believe that the New Testament takes most of those promises and reinterprets them to be something very different. It's not going to look anything like what those Old Testament prophets anticipated. And the result of that sort of thinking is, is that it ends in a very different philosophy of how you interpret the Scriptures. And so the meaning of Scripture is not nearly as objective and concrete as we might think. Of course, I think we all, if you love the Bible, understand that how you interpret the Bible is very important. And and how you interpret the Bible, your philosophy of Bible interpretation is directly tied to how you view the future of Israel. And the third reason why you should care about this is because you care about the nature and mission of the church. Now, Now, think with me here, all right? Because covenant theology teaches... That for the most part, God has rejected the nation of Israel. They they rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and and God is building the church. And so they would say 
that most of the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament have been transferred to the church. So we are the new Israel. And if we are the new Israel, we are the continuation of the nation of Israel from the Old Testament. Well, that greatly affects how you see the nature of the church and the mission of the church. And as well, just your Christian responsibilities. So so if we are the new Israel, well, then baptism is the new circumcision. And baptism is for babies, not for people who are redeemed. And the church becomes, like Israel was, a community of covenant families, not a pure community of the redeemed. And as well, if we are the new Israel, then the church's mission has to include many of the things that God told Israel to do in the Old Testament. So we're not just responsible to to make disciples and plant churches and share the gospel. No, if we are the new Israel, then, then we need to fight hunger. We need to end racism. We need to fight every political battle because we have the same political and social responsibilities that Israel did. And so it's a very different vision of what the church is and what the church does. It also affects how you apply the Old Testament to your life. You know, do we need to keep the Sabbath the same way that Israel did? Are you responsible to keep food laws and clothing laws? How does all that carry over? So, 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 so ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. Sometimes we just want to think about the consequence, but you can't really deal with the consequence unless you deal with the idea. So, so this idea of whether or not Uh, God has a future for Israel has far-reaching effects. So how does Paul answer? We can jump to the next slide. Well, first, Paul answers in verse 1, may it never be. So Paul strongly denies that God has rejected the nation of Israel. And then he gives a fuller answer in verse, at the beginning of verse 2. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, now God. so he says there that God foreknew Israel. And that clearly means that he chose them for himself long before Israel chose him. And God didn't choose Israel because they were so godly and so wonderful and precious. No, notice what God says or what Moses says to Israel in the wilderness in Deuteronomy chapter 7. You can advance it, yeah. Deuteronomy 7, Moses says to Israel, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And the Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers. God is clear there that His love for Israel, and the same would be true for us, was never about how much they deserved it. No, His choice of them was always rooted in His grace and faithfulness. God chose Israel long before they chose Him. And we only love God because God first loved us. So our standing with God was never about our worthiness. It was always about His grace. 
And praise the Lord for that, right? That, that if you are born again, you did nothing to deserve your standing with God. That God loved you because of who He is, not because of who you are. So don't listen when Satan whispers that it's up to you to keep God's love. Or that, that God might change His mind of, on His love for you. No, we can rest in the sovereign grace and faithfulness of God. Because our relationship to Him is always anchored in His purpose and grace. So, so Paul here responds strongly. God has not rejected Israel. Because His relationship with them was never based on, his, on their worth. So, so the fact that they had rejected Him isn't going to change God's promise. Because it was never about them. It was always about Him. So He is not done with them. He will keep every promise. And then he offers two proofs. Two proofs of this fact. And the first proof he gives is his own testimony. So so look at what Paul says at the end of verse 1. He says, For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now now Paul's testimony is is actually a really strong and and powerful answer, or or strong proof of the fact, of the the idea that he's trying to communicate here. So, So Paul says... You know, I mean, he implies here that if any Jew deserved to be disqualified from the promise of God, it was Paul. I mean, think about the fact that, that Paul grew up knowing the law inside and out. He had every opportunity to know God. But when Jesus came, he rejected him as his Messiah. And he didn't just reject Jesus. He was dead set on destroying the church. He wanted to ruin Christianity. But he didn't. You know, God, and, and, and if God, and if God were, if, if God's salvation was determinative, determined based on Paul's status and Paul's credentials, God never would have saved him. But God pursued Paul anyway with sovereign grace, and he saved him on the road to Damascus. So Paul's own life testifies to God's continued faithfulness to Israel. I mean, if, if, if Paul's disobedience and obstinacy didn't turn God away, then no one else's could either. God is always faithful, even when we are not. He rescues people in their sin. His grace is always greater than our sin. And if God could save a sinner like Paul, God could save any sinner in this room. It doesn't matter what you have done, how you have sinned against God. God's grace is sufficient to forgive you and transform you. If you'll just humble yourself before Him and run to His grace. So, so you don't have to like, you know, take three steps to God so that God will take the last seven steps. You just humble yourself before Him and receive His grace. And if you are saved, never forget that your standing with God was never about your worth. It was always about His grace. God didn't choose you because you deserved it. Or because He knew how great of a Christian you would be. He chose you because of His own sovereign grace and love. And you don't have to keep that love. You rest in the grace that He gives. God will never change His mind God will never break a promise. He is always faithful.
And then the second proof of this fact is the testimony of the 7,000. So look at what Paul says at the end of verse 2, going down to verse 4. He says, Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now this is another powerful proof of God's faithfulness because Ahab and Jezebel's reign over the northern kingdom of Israel was a dark, evil time in Israel's history. It wasn't just that that Ahab and Jezebel worshipped Baal, and and Baal worship was just a cruel, violent, horrible religion. But they didn't just practice it, they forced it on the entire nation to the extent that Elijah thought He was the only person left in the nation who was faithful to God. But Elijah stood up for God. He boldly challenged the prophets of Baal to a duel, so to speak, and um, and, and, and on Mount Carmel. And and God rained fire down from heaven and, and He boldly and clearly demonstrated His supremacy over Baal. It was an amazing display. And Elijah thought, man, I mean, after something like that, Revival is surely going to come about. But instead, when Jezebel heard what had happened, she wanted Elijah dead. And Elijah despaired. He ran off into the desert and he asked God to kill him. And verse 3 quotes his complaint to God when he's out in the desert. He says, God, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars and I alone am left. And it was bad. Israel was evil, defiant, and violent. Elijah thinks he's the only man left in the whole nation who's faithful to God. And he thought that God's promises to the nation would die with him. I'm the last one left. Kill me. Be done with us. God responds that he had preserved 7,000 Israelites who continued to worship him. God preserved a remnant. Now, now that's the definition of a bittersweet statement from God because on the one hand, 7,000 is not very many people in a nation of millions, right? It's a pretty small remnant. And yet it also powerfully testified to God's continued faithfulness to Israel. Yes, it was dark. But no matter how dark it would get, God would not abandon His promise. He would preserve a remnant. And it's worth emphasizing that God continues to do that among the Jews to this day. Now, now the vast majority of of Jews do not believe that Jesus is Messiah. In fact, increasingly, a lot of Jews don't even believe in God. And yet, right here in our own nation, there there are missions groups that are doing aggressive works of evangelism among the Jews. Now, most of them reject. Some of them reject violently. And yet, God saves some. And so, God to this day is preserving a Jewish remnant. He is faithful to His promise. And it's worth emphasizing that God will also preserve the church. I had someone tell me a couple weeks ago that if America falls, the church will fall too. And I told him, I was like, well, you know, we we don't want America to fall. We want America to continue to be a place of freedom and worship and 
and good values. But no matter what happens to America, Jesus said that I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And so the American government, the Russian government, the Chinese government, secularism, Islam, whatever other thing that scares you is out there, none of them can threaten the survival of the church. Because Jesus has secured and promised that the work of the gospel. So, so don't forget that we are on the winning side. The harvest is plentiful. God is saving people. He is building His church. I hope you believe that. And I hope it shows in, in how you share the gospel, how you make disciples. You know, trust the Lord and serve with great expectation. That God is working. So so the bridge, then, between the Roman context and our context is the faithfulness of God. The Jewish remnant didn't need to worry that God would reject Israel because God is always faithful to His promise. And God's promise was not rooted in them. It was rooted in His grace. And we don't need to worry either about God breaking His promises to us because God is always faithful. So anchor your soul to the faithfulness of God. You never need to doubt a promise of God because God will always do everything that He has said. And then verses 5 and 6 build off this to assert a second major truth in our text, which is that grace alone preserves the remnant. Grace alone preserves the remnant. So so let's read verses 5 and 6 again. It says, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now again, verse 4 said that God preserved a remnant in Elijah's day. And in verse 5, Paul says, to this day, God is preserving a remnant of of Jews who are faithful to Him. And of course, Paul was was a member of that remnant. But but someone might object, "Well, well, sure, there's a remnant now, but what if the number of Jewish Christians just keeps getting smaller and smaller until there's no one left? And how do we know that because there's a remnant today, that it's going to continue into the future. I think sometimes American Christians can have the same defeatist attitude about American church decline. And Paul responds that God's purpose will not fail because because human choice was never determinative. No, instead, the remnant has always been, as he says in verse 5, according to God's gracious choice. Now, the Greek word translated choice here is eklage, and it's commonly translated as elect. And the idea is, is that no one deserves salvation, right? If the promise depended on us, no one would be saved. But God graciously elects some Jews and everyone in the church for himself. So his purpose, his choice is what fulfills the promise It's not about us. And it's not about people making decisions or us doing our thing. It is about God. And that's big news for two reasons. 
The first reason is, is that God's promise is sure. God's promise is sure. You know, folks, it's important to just emphasize that that when God gives us a promise in Scripture, that is not Him making a prediction. And and God's promises are not even just Him looking down the annals of time and, and just knowing what's going to happen. No, God's promises are rooted in His sovereign will and His purpose. And His almighty power guarantees their fulfillment. So it doesn't matter how broken Israel is. And it doesn't matter how hostile the world may be. Or how evil Satan is. Nothing can stop God's purpose. Nothing can destroy God's people. God will preserve a remnant. And the same goes for every promise that God has made to you. A while back, um, probably I guess this spring, we, we saw in Romans 8 verse 30 that God promises that everyone who is justified will be glorified someday. We will make it to heaven. And we will be perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus. Now I've heard people say, well, well yeah, God, God will not let go of me. He will not drop me out of, my, out of His hand. But what if I jump out of His hand? What if I run away from Him and, and abandon Him and miss glory? And the answer is, is that your salvation never ultimately depended on you. It was always in God's mighty hand. Now, you're not wrong to doubt yourself. In fact, you should doubt yourself. But you can be certain of God's gracious purpose. He will hold you fast. And the second reason God's gracious choice is big news is because God's grace is amazing. I mean, notice the conclusion Paul draws from election in verse 6. Again, he says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now, the logic here is quite simple. If election determines who is saved, our works are not what saves us. And they're not what keeps us either. No, grace is our only hope. And praise God that God's grace is always enough. Just think about Paul's testimony. There he is on the road to Damascus. And he's planning to rip families apart, send people off to jail, intimidate Christians to the point that they give up on Jesus. It is a cruel, violent plan. And then God, just out of nowhere, plucks Paul out of his evil purpose and makes him his own child. And calls him to, to, be, to start the Gentile church. I mean, what explains Paul's conversion? Nothing but the grace and mercy and purpose of God. And the same is true of every Christian in this room. I mean, you are not here today because you are so spiritual. Or so wise. But because of the sovereign grace of God. And so there is no room for pride at the foot of the cross. And there's no room for pride in the fellowship of God's people. There's only room for us to be amazed at the grace of God and to be full of grace towards each other. So rejoice in the grace of God. And then trust that grace. Mature believers are always suspicious of themselves, but confident of the grace of God. You are not sufficient for the Christian life. 
But God is. And the grace of God is. God will be faithful because His grace is amazing. So grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Press towards godliness and ministry with confidence because you believe in the power of God. You believe in the power of His grace and the faithfulness of His purpose. So so God's grace is amazing. Grace is the reason why, why Paul could say that the remnant will continue. And then the third truth of our text is that God justly hardens the majority. God justly hardens the majority. Now that sounds like a downer, right? After we're talking about grace and faithfulness, God hardens the majority. And, and so notice what he says in verses 7-10. through 10. He says, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. Now these verses begin with some important bad news. Paul says, what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. And Paul says something here that that he said several times in Romans. You know, Paul's Jewish contemporaries, they were seeking a relationship with God. They really were. You know, they, but but the problem is, they they went about the wrong way. You, You can't fault their effort because they were putting forth great effort, but they did it the wrong way. They were striving to obey God's law, at times to ridiculous extremes. I mean, I, I think often about how Jesus says, that they tithed mint and cumin. I mean, can you imagine pulling a, a stem of, off of a mint plant and counting out every tenth leaf to make sure that you tithe it to God? I mean, that's pretty extreme effort to, to obey God's law. But tragically, their efforts were vain. And the vast majority failed to obtain a relationship with God. And Paul has said, that their focus on achieving righteousness blinded them to their need of grace. They were so determined to do everything that they needed to do to earn a relationship with God that they missed the fact that they could never get there on their own. They put all their energy into a hopeless solution and it brought condemnation. And that, that is such an important warning for our day because the secular gospel says that any sincere pursuit is a good pursuit. If you are following your heart and it makes you happy, then it's a good thing, no matter what it is that you're doing. But God says that is a terrible lie. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So you can only be saved through Jesus. You have to give up on earning God's favor and doing it your way. You have to trust completely what Jesus did on the cross. So, if you're trying to get there some other way, you need to humble yourself today, receive Him, and be saved. But but thankfully, the bad news is not the only news. Verse 7 goes on to say, but those who were chosen obtained it, speaking of a relationship to God. Now, now God was and is preserving a remnant. 
And, and Paul wants to emphasize again that it's not because of, of Paul or anyone else in that remnant is special. It's because of God's grace. And that is great news. Because God's grace is amazing and it will never end and it assures us that God will fulfill His promise. But then, there's more bad news. Verse 7 ends by saying, the rest were hardened. Now we've talked a little bit about hardening back in chapter 9. And Doug Moo simply defines hardening as a spiritual insensitivity that prevents people from responding to God or His message of salvation. So it is a spiritual insensitivity. When you think of hardening, you can think of someone who is calloused, who has become um, yeah, calloused or hardened in their sin. And verses 8-10 through 10 then go on uh, to describe that hardening and, and to prove from the Old Testament that it is in fact true. Yeah, and, and hardening is, is it's a, it's a difficult topic, but, but it's also kind of a helpful topic. Because have you ever read the Old Testament or read the Gospels and just been befuddled at how foolish the people were? And Jesus casts out a demon. Right in front of people. And instead of bowing down in worship, they say, oh, you did that in the power of Satan. And how could they be so foolish? How how could they watch these things and miss the point? Well, verse 8 answers that God gave them a spirit of stupor. And the idea there is, is that the hardened heart is practically drunk. They become drunk as as God hardens them and and they are blind and deaf to His truth. Now, I don't think any of us just naturally like the idea that God would harden someone. But we have to understand that God's hardening is always just. Verse 9 says that God had prepared for Israel a, a table. And so God had given Israel incredible blessings. He gave them the law. He performed so many incredible miracles for them. He sent prophets. But instead of responding with humility before God, they ignored God's Word. They boasted in their righteousness. And they refused to humble themselves before Christ. It was evil. And Israel then deserved this hardening. And so, you know, we, we tend to look at a subject like hardening and think, well, that's not nice. But what really, what we ought to understand, what we really need to understand is that rejecting God's Word is a serious sin issue. It's not amazing that God hardens people in their sin. It's amazing that God would ever show grace. God is is not some insecure lover who who just keeps going back time after time to an unfaithful spouse. No, He is the Lord. And He will only make His offer of salvation so many times. Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, do not cast your pearls before swine. And so the idea is, is that the Gospel deserves honor. And if someone continues to trample on the gospel, there comes a point where they don't deserve to receive it anymore. And that's a really important perspective. We have to remember that as we ponder the faithfulness and grace of God. So so, so please don't hear all that I've said today 
about God's sovereign grace as, as meaning that God's grace then is a license to sin. Well, I mean, well, hey, God's faithful, God's gracious. So, so that means that I'm saved and that can never go away, so I'm going to go do my thing. Have a good time. And God will be faithful to me even when I'm not faithful to Him. Praise God. No, that is not what he's saying. God graciously preserves a remnant. But verses 7-10 through 10 add that He also judged Israel and continues to judge most Jews with hardness because of their rebellion. Folks, God is the Lord. And He demands your worship and service. Now, now He is a loving Father who offers abundant grace. But rejecting the grace of God is a serious sin. And God's justice will not stand by idly forever. So maybe you're sitting there today and you, you just, you're not ready to humble yourself before God. And you, you want to have some fun first. Enjoy your youth. Have a good time. Experience the world. And, and then when I'm older and married and have kids, then I'll grow up, I'll get saved, and I'll serve the Lord. Well, God warns that this very well could be your last chance to respond to the Gospel. It could be the last time you hear the Gospel. And it could be very well, it could very well be true that if you do not respond to the Gospel today, that God will harden your heart to the truth of His Word and you will never have an opportunity truly to respond again. And so God, now God might give you another one. He might give you many more. But do not presume that He will. No, receive Christ today. Be saved right now in your seat. You can confess right now that Jesus is Lord and you have sinned against His will. And you can believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that Jesus is sufficient to save, and you can receive Him as Lord and Savior. So if you've not done that, don't put it off. Do that today because you are not guaranteed another opportunity to respond to Christ. Oh, please understand that while God is gracious and faithful, He is also just. And trampling on His Word, trampling on the Gospel of Christ is a serious sin that deserves your hardening. So respond today to His grace and kindness. So so the bridge between the Roman context and ours is the character of God. Our God is just. And He takes sin seriously. And so understand that that you cannot rebel against His will or, or arrogantly refuse to bow the knee before Him without consequence. So do not take your sin lightly. Even as a Christian, always kneel before the Lordship of Christ. But praise the Lord that God is not just just, He is also gracious and faithful. His grace, not my character, assures me that He will keep every promise. So give thanks for His grace towards you. Rest in that grace. And go forward in that grace with certainty that God will be faithful to His children. He will keep every promise. He will bring you to glory someday. And He will do everything that He has said. God is faithful.
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are a faithful God. That, Lord, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, Lord, there is so much rest, hope, certainty, and comfort in your faithfulness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your justice. Lord, I pray for any who are here who do not know Christ as Savior, that right now they would respond in faith to the truth of the gospel and be saved. And Lord, I pray for every Christian in this room that, that, that Lord, your Spirit would give us confidence in your word, confidence in your character, confidence in your promises, and that we would faithfully serve you. God, we are, we are grateful that our lives are in the hands, in your hands, and not ours. Help us to rest in you, we pray in Jesus' name.